right, welcome back to Firewall. Um, I guess I someone I'm, I'm excited about. We were just talking kind of before uh, we started recording, and I, I said you're a famous person, and she kind of disagreed with it, but I, I really think she is. So Sharon Salzberg, if you know anything about the world of mindfulness and meditation, is kind of one of the legends uh, of the field, um, has written countless books. The newest one is Finding Your Way, Meditations, Thoughts, and Wisdom for Living an Authentic Life. She has a great podcast. She's a guest on a lot of other people's podcasts. And I really think her insights have changed the lives and thinking of probably millions of people. So, Sharon, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. Um, so, d- does it? You know, it's funny because I have gotten into mindfulness and, and been studying it, meditation. It feels all of a sudden very present and real to me. H- has there been kind of an increase, generally speaking, in the Western world? of people sort of engaging in the practice, or am I just thinking that's the case because I'm doing it? <laughs> I, I think it's been an exponential increase. It's like, it's unfathomable to somebody like me. I went to India as a college student uh, on an independent study program because I really wanted to learn how to meditate. And I was going to college in Buffalo, New York. I looked around Buffalo. This is 1970. Yeah, I didn't see it anywhere. So I went off to India. And uh, when I came back, it was a little bit more than my allotted year, but uh, I did come back, finish school, and then went back to India. I came back in 74, and in those days, I mean, nobody ever used the word mindfulness. If you said meditation in some social situation, people would kind of sidle away, you know, or occasionally somebody would say to me, did you meet the Beatles over there? Or, you know, and uh, it, it was just not, it was not familiar. It was not comfortable for people to, to contemplate. I think it's, it's been a huge change in part because of the science and the research and I think the advent of tech, you know, it's made things accessible. You know, you don't have to schlep off to India right? if you don't really want to. And I also wonder if it's a little bit like the car, that, the dog that caught the car in the sense mm-hmm. of, you know, at least in our culture, we are taught that happiness comes from achievement, making money, gaining status, prestige things like that. And then oftentimes people will attain some measure of that and then say, why am I not blissful 24 um, seven? Mm-hmm. And the answer is because it's not really actually what makes you happy. And it's, you know, you, you have to have the right mindset to understand yourself and the rest of the world and navigate it properly. Um, so how much of the growth generally do you think is people sort of just feeling like our societal definition of success and happiness is insufficient? Uh, first of all, I would hesitate to say that meditation will make you blissful 24 hours a day either. <laughs> fair you know? fair like, enough, fair enough. You know, so uh, it's kind of got a somewhat different aim in that um, it, it's more like the holding environment, the space with which we greet pleasure and pain and the inevitable joys and sorrows of life. That That holding environment is different. You know, we're not so burdened by old fears maybe or... Um, that sense of dissatisfaction, which is genuine, that you're pointing to being pervasive. I don't have enough. I am not enough. It will never be enough. And, you know, endless competition and comparison, which just wears us down. Uh, we get a much finer sense of discernment about what will bring us a more abiding happiness. And, and that has to do, I think, with connection and clarity and, and presence. You know, you can have every object in the world. And if you don't sort of stop and notice them, it's never going to be enough. So it, it, given that now there's sort of a whole industry around happiness science that, that didn't mm-hmm. exist when you were first going to India and, and, and all of that, um, 
Do, do you feel like there's been kind of a, a quantitative shift in people's definitions of happiness and maybe they're sort of starting to realize more that um, you know, being really present and being mindful, right, won't make you blissful, but it will help you better sort of, you know, understand things and understand yourself. Or is that sort of like, am I in this bubble of like rich people in Manhattan and, and I get to live in this <laughs> world of privilege that doesn't exist in reality? Uh, no, I think it, it does exist in reality. And because, uh, I mean, one of the populations that I've been very committed to working with in the last uh, many years now is, is people we call caregivers who mm -hmm. are either in their families or on, in their professional lives or really on the front lines of suffering. You know, they're not necessarily rich people in Manhattan at all. And uh, in many ways, you know, my, the first group I worked with for about four years was domestic violence shelter workers. It was frontline workers in the shelters and then uh, international humanitarian aid workers, people who work in the refugee camps. And that's still going on. And, and then medical workers, you know, of all kinds during the, the height of the pandemic. And, uh, you know, and to see that. These are people who maybe have enormous empathy for others and uh, they're really caring and they are burning out in vast numbers, yeah. not because of a lack of caring, but uh, there's something about inner resource, being able to meet the moment, not having uh, kind of weird, fantastical ideas about what one can accomplish, you know, uh, being able to have some balance with the ups and downs. That's what's really fortifying people to be more resilient. And it's all kinds of people. Yeah. I mean, this, this, I'm going to try out a concept and it just may not even make sense at all. But it, it seems like if, if you break the world down into sort of just two groups or categories, there's a, a world that has a lot of abundance and life in many ways is easier simply because we have running water, clean running water and safe places to live and freedom of speech and all these different things, but also maybe a lot of dissatisfaction and anxiety because um, we prioritize things that ultimately sort of don't achieve the result that we think we're going to. You have a lot of the world that doesn't have a lot of the basics that people should have, um, but also a different mindset. And so in some ways, the things that ultimately drive happiness, you know, relationships and fulfillment and things like that are actually more present in their lives. Is there a world where we can have it all where we have sort of a, a base level of resources so people's lives are, are not so hard and yet at the same time um, kind of have the right perspective as to what shapes happiness or does having the resources come from sort of a zero-sum capitalistic mentality and once you lose that, you know, you, you no longer have the resources? No, I certainly think we can have both. I mean, why not? I think, well, in some ways, you know, even as you paint that picture of the first group uh, with the resources, uh, if you're alive and in relationship, if you have kids, if you have a you know, sibling, if you have a neighbor, you know, you're in relationship. And I've never, for example, gone into a company or an organization to teach and had anybody say to me, I want to be like more productive. You know, that's all I want. I don't care if I'm soulless. I don't care if I, you know, right. work 20 hours. Everyone says I'm worried about my kid or I can't sleep at night because of my brother or, you know, something like that. Or I can't sleep at night because of the workload and I don't know how to stand up for myself, whatever it is, you know, and uh, we have an inner life anyway. It is the solution to their or the answer to their question 
like a structural change in their life? Or is it, look, to a certain extent, this is what life is, right? You, you, your brother has an addiction problem. Your boss is an asshole, whatever it is. But here's how you can a- approach it uh, in a way that will make it far more tolerable. Or, or is it like literally like you need to quit your job? Well, it might be you need to quit your job. I'm not really sure about that. But, you know, uh, in uh, many circumstances, I think of like the stress dynamic, which is a dynamic. You know, there's the pressure, the incident, the circumstance, and then there's a resource with which it's met. And we know that from any ordinary day in life, right? You didn't sleep all night. You had to get up way too early in the morning to do something. You know, you're, you're tired. You go to work. Somebody makes a comment. You really take it to heart. You're so upset. As compared to, you had a beautiful night's sleep, you had breakfast with all these beloved people, uh, your dog is in a good mood, you know, you, you go to work, you hear the comment, and you think, boy, someone's having a bad day, right? right? We, we feel it differently. So some people hear that, and they think, oh, that means you're never going to try to have structural change, you're never going to try to have a better, more sane work environment, and that's not true. But why make that effort with maximum depletion and exhaustion and feeling burdened and and lonely and, you know, all of those things we feel, you know, why not have the sense of being uh, resourced from within? So so for people listening to this, and obviously you you write lots of books about this and talk about it, but if they said, okay, sounds good, Sharon, I want to do that. What do I do next? What's the answer? I would um, develop a certain amount of understanding, which you could do with a book, you could do with a conversation with somebody, so that uh, the important thing is undertaking a practice. And I uh, interviewed Richie Davidson uh, yesterday for my podcast, um, who's a neuroscientist at University of Wisconsin at Madison, who's done really pioneering work on research into the brain and meditation and and he, like many of my friends, I've known for like 40, 45 years. And, um, and he said uh, his lab found that five minutes of practice a day, that's formal meditation practice. You sit or you walk and uh, formal in the sense of you don't have to sit in like a pretzel-like pose, but it's a dedicated period where you're trying to deepen the qualities of attention and awareness and compassion and so on. So... He said five minutes a day will will bring results and kind of almost re- rewires the the brain a little bit. Yeah, and and I commented to him that um, I I've heard that from people. Uh, I also quote often another neuroscientist friend of mine whose name is Amishi John. She has a lab at the University of Miami. She says uh, twelve minutes a day. She works with high stress people in the military, mm-hmm. uh, first responders, high performance athletes. She said 12 minutes a day. So my conversation with each of them has been, first of all, uh, I don't know if it's that healthy to go for the bare minimum all the time, but it's good to know that, you know, it's not an eight-hour-a-day problem. Right. That really with a few minutes a day in a dedicated way, you will see results. So I meditate 20 minutes a day, but I would say of – so the good news is I'm consistent, right? So that's good. The bad news is the number of – seconds within that 20 minute period where I am truly just focused on my breath is like infinitesimal, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And what I'm told is the practice is really 
bringing myself back to the focus on my mm -hmm, breath, mm -hmm, not mm -hmm. the focus on the breath itself. Is that true or is my teacher <laughs> trying to make me feel better? It's true. <laughs> no, it is true. And I say it ad nauseum, the, you know, uh, I say it in a lot of different ways. Basically, it's a practice. That kind of practice is a practice of recovery where you have a single object, the feeling of the breath or a mantra or sound or saying or image or something. Your attention wanders and you realize that you come back. So what you're developing in that moment, in that process, is uh, one of my teachers called it um, the letting go muscle. You're letting go more gracefully. You're not freaking out because your mind wandered. You're kinder to yourself. You're developing self-compassion. You're developing resilience, the ability to begin again, uh, all kinds of things. You know, that practice evolves so that when something comes up, maybe a strong sensation, strong emotional state, strong pattern of thinking, uh, your goal is not so much to let go and come back to the breath right away, but to be with that experience in a different way. But what you're doing is the foundation, and it's something we keep returning to because so, it you know, builds concentration. Right. So you've been at, so speaking of concentration, that's such a per perfect segue. So you've been at this for 50 years, and on one yeah. hand, there's been these sort of very positive normative changes towards people really em embracing these concepts. Um, at the same time, there's been the development of the internet and social media and all of these things that make us more distracted than ever. Um, just are, are people, is it harder for people now to try to just sit there with themselves and their anxiety or their suffering or whatever it is? Um, because we're all kind of ADD as a result of, of technology? Or are people kind of about as distracted as they always were? I think I think both could probably true. Like uh, another friend of mine, Linda Stone, coined a phrase, um, continuous partial attention, which she uh, describes as, you know, often a function of the internet. Like you're on email and you think, I need to be on, you know, uh facebook and then you're on facebook and think right. what about instagram you know yeah, and like yeah. and so uh we develop continuous partial attention so we need to challenge that but i think in some ways you know like i'm, I'm trying to think back when i started were we anxious you know off in india uh i was i was very frightened of many many things but right. that's so you know that was the result of the way i grew up and stuff and um it's just different. It's like the distractions are, are somewhat different and they're more sophisticated. And they're often, if you use an app uh, or a timer, you know, something from your phone to meditate with, uh, you know, mm -hmm. uh, it's the same kind of device. You right. know, it's like either it's a little demon or it's, right. yeah. you know, I, or it's your big helper. Exactly. Yeah. I guess I, I always have this sort of somewhat awareness in the back of my head about that's exactly what I do. There's an, an app that sort of, you know, does it for me. And then I, at a certain point, it emits a different sound and I move to loving kindness. Um, but nonetheless, right, I, there's an awareness of the device um, the entire time. So I, I think it at least feels like maybe because we just have so much access to information so instantaneously, the world kind of feels worse than ever. Um, but But given that you've been at this for 50 years and you started doing this, Kind of in the you know height of Vietnam and everything else, um, it, it, is the world materially worse or, or better than it was fifty years ago, or is it just kind of the same 
And it's always the human condition to sort of just have a lot of anxiety about whatever we're living through. I think, uh, I don't know that the world is worse and people say it's better in terms of, you know, uh, infant mortality or, yeah. you know, child poverty, or right. things like that. I think we do have access to information. And I think um, in, in some ways I don't, I don't see it so much on that side. Depends on where you are, of course, you know, yeah, if you're right, in a right. war, it's yeah. a whole different thing. But um, I think a lot of the resources we once counted on to kind of shore us up or give us a sense of belonging or, or clarity, uh, they're shaky, you know, for a lot of people. And, uh, you know, I, often quote it's just the book title of uh robert putnam's book bowling alone about yep. the dissolution of bowling leagues in, yep. in the u.s and uh you know how many people have a formal faith tradition that they are counting on that gives them a sense of community that uh, gives them uh not a sense of separation and being better than others but a real uh commitment to caring for others you know and a sense of being kind of part of a larger community of as humans and not so many perhaps as in the past. And so we're kind of out there and people work so hard and, and so long. Um, and, you know, I remember in the beginning of uh, COVID in New York, I would be talking to people. Uh, I left New York and came back up to Massachusetts where the Insight Meditation Society is. And we were still open when I came up and closed about three days later, but you know, I talk to people and they say, never, who lives in New York, they say, I never even used to know my neighbors' names. I've lived here for 12 years. But now we all have one another's names and phone numbers. Right. It's like almost and a we weird, check like, in on right, each other. in Manhattan, it's like a point of pride in New York City. Like, yeah, I don't, I don't know my neighbors. Yeah. Um, right. But 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 you, you should want to know your neighbors. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah. there's, right, there's clearly awareness of what you're saying, right? The Surgeon General here has been talking a lot about sort of loneliness mm -hmm. and kind of mm -hmm. the health impacts. I think in the UK they declared a loneliness epidemic. So it feels like we get it, we're aware of it. Um, but, I'm, you know, unlike some public policy issues where you say, okay, well, if you pass this law or provide this funding, you can solve this problem. How do you solve this problem? I don't know if you've read the Surgeon General's uh, quite lovely pieces on loving kindness meditation, by the way. No, no, I'll check yeah. them out. Yeah, yeah. You should. Uh, well, I mean, as a meditation teacher, you know, it's ironic and funny because meditation could seem like the most solitary activity conceivable. Right. You, know, you might do it all alone. You might do it with your eyes closed. But what develops is a sense of win wisdom or insight that we are part of an interconnected world. And you can do that in a lot of different ways. Like, again, going into a company or an organization to teach, my favorite question is, how many other people need to be doing their job well for you to do your job well? And you think, oh, right. right <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, pretty, yeah. And it kind of got very enhanced. Uh, also, you know, in the sort of beginnings of COVID when I was talking to a physician who ran a, you know, medical practice, pretty large medical practice in a hospital. And he said, you know who I have a new appreciation for is the cleaning staff. And I thought, well, yeah, you know, like <laughs> right. there's a pandemic. Right. They're you know, and so and uh, yeah. different ways of just looking at life, learning uh, to volunteer. I mean, uh, my friends who have been the most depressed, uh, aside from whatever treatment they may do, say they get the most out of, you know, making sandwiches for homebound people or, yeah. you know, really connecting. Yeah. And it's funny. So I, I 
been volunteering at soup kitchens for 30 years and I do it every week. And the real, what I realized is that the real thing that I gain from it is not even the sense of fulfillment of like helping feed the hungry. It's that I've been volunteering for the last at least decade with the same group of people every mm -hmm. Thursday morning. Mm -hmm. And I don't really talk to them outside of the, of the soup kitchen, but uh -huh. like they're a community that I really just, I like them and I get, I get something clearly out of my relationship with them. And I think that's ultimately what keeps bringing me back yeah. Um, because it's this physical thing, right? And we're all in this little crappy kitchen and we're all doing lots of different things and it's, it's fun. What's your sort of sense of if, if someone's listening to this and they say, okay, um, I recognize that my life while on paper is probably along the lines of what I had wanted it to be. I don't feel the level of contentment or freedom or peace or ease that I would like to feel just to make my day-to-day -day life, you know, easier and better. Um, so th there's the practice of, of mindfulness and meditation. Um, what else should people be thinking about doing to kind of help them get to that point? Well, I think that, you know, like that formal period of say five or in your case, 20 minutes a day, and it, it truly doesn't matter how often you're with the breath or not. It really, it really is. It's building muscle, you know, of letting go and, self-compassion and so on every time you return that becomes the foundation for uh what one of my teachers you know this tibetan teacher high up in the himalayas called short moments many times where you realize one of the reasons we feel that dissatisfaction or, or discontent is just not present you know there's something great happening right in front of you and you're lost in thought about something that has not happened that may never happen and you're filled with anxiety about it, you know? And, and so you kind of just gently remind yourself, like, be here, right. So you I, know? Yeah, yeah. And that becomes easier and easier and it's fun, you know, because you realize, uh, I mean, speaking about New Yorkers, you know, I grew up in New York City yep. and the ethic was sort of like, if you're in an elevator, you don't talk to anybody, you don't look at anybody, you don't, you know, right. and if they talk to you, it's like too weird. And right. What's wrong I still with have you? that in me, you know, although yeah. I haven't been, uh, you know, given circumstances in an elevator with people nope. who are you're actually chatting. But, you know, let's say three years ago, three and a half years ago, I'd be in an elevator in New York and somebody would strike up a conversation with me and I'd feel it in my body. Like, what do you want? You know, right. and I could recognize that and just relax. And I might have the thought, maybe I have no one else to talk to. Maybe they're more interesting than I'm imagining, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it's funny because, right, especially as like a New Yorker, I think my preferred mode would be like, you know, maximum efficiency, you know, leave me alone. But ultimately, you know, it, it is the sort of little pleasant interactions with strangers over the course yeah. of the day that, that really do have a huge impact um, on your mood, right? And it's, you know, just again, being a little more like if, if I'm ordering a coffee for the not looking at my phone in the minute that they're making it and instead just sort of paying attention. And, you know, there might be a nice exchange. There might not. Um, but at least I'm creating the, the possibility for it. Um, and then carrying on from there, actually tasting your coffee. Right. Right. You know, because we multitask generally all the time, you know, and so. Right. And we will continue to do that, but it doesn't have to be maybe quite so much. And, and you can actually say, you know what? I'm just going to taste this. Yeah. Right. And even if it's just for a second or two, right? And then you can yeah. get back to your multitasking. That, that actually leads to the, the next thing I was wondering about, which is 
I think a lot of parents feel, or at least I do, um, this conflict between the way we live now in some ways lets me be with my kids a lot more because I often don't have to be in any particular place at any particular time. And so I can kind of make a lot of things work. Mm -hmm. At the same time, the cost of my doing that is that stuff is happening and I'm coming, it's coming out of my phone nonstop. And part of my attention is, is either directly focused on whatever's happening on my phone, or at least, you know, it's sort of like you said before, you know, part of it in, is it held in reserve where I'm paying attention to whatever my kid's doing, but at the same time, I'm also thinking about whatever I need to be doing uh, for work or whatever else. So like it, ultimately, what, what's the answer to that? Are you better off just sort of having these very clear boundaries between work and kids? And even if that means you work more and see your kids less, but you're more present when you're there, that's better? Or um, is there a way to kind of take advantage of the technology without then feeling kind of captured by it? Well, there's got to be a way of taking advantage of it without feeling captured by it. I mean, you could answer that probably better than I, since I'm assuming you're a parent. Yes, yes. (laughs) You know, but uh, I think those boundaries are are interesting, and uh, they're so annoying that that makes them even more interesting, you know, internally. Like, what do you mean? You know, I have to shut it off, or what do you mean? Like, I didn't know what Zoom scrolling was until I was interviewed about it. and the journalist said to me, well, how do you feel about doom scrolling? And he also said, a colleague of yours recommended I, I contact you for this article. And I didn't know what it was. So I said, what's doom scrolling? So he explained it to me. And I said, oh, yeah, I do that. And then uh, when the article came out, I, I was in it. And uh, I saw my colleague was not. So I said to her, why did you recommend me? Because you know I do it? And she said, no, I was just too busy. you know. But <laughs> I did do it. And. Uh, and do you I mean, when I catch pra- myself yeah, doing that, it? It's a practice. I mean, it's, you see that right now a lot, especially among Jews. Yeah. You know yeah. what's happening in Israel. It's so hard to not get caught up in just sort of constantly because there's just always more and more and more opinions and information and everything else. So, like, how do you handle this influx of information? Do you like with Israel, for example? I think one thing I've realized is there's not that much I can do. Right, like there are lots of things where I can give money that makes a difference, and, and I'm ha- you know I've been trying that here, but we're talking about you know federal appropriations of tens of billions of dollars, right, mm-hmm, to, to deal mm-hmm. with this thing, not you writing a check for a couple of grand. Um, when there's something kind of important happening in the world and you care about it, but at the same time maybe there's not that much that you can actually do to impact the outcome of it. W- what's the best way to approach it? Is it to sort of disengage a little bit or should you is sort of I think a lot of people feel like because they can't do anything to really help Israel, they're fulfilling their duty by sort of doom scrolling, um, although that doesn't actually help anybody. Yeah, I mean, in terms of things like doom scrolling, uh, I think just in the um, sort of general evolution of mindfulness in one's life, not in a kind of cold scrutinizing way, you just get a sense of checking in on how something's making you feel. You know, because the things that are exhausting us, the things that are like the the 15th news show that we're watching is exhausting us because it's the same story. Yeah. You right. know, uh, and you just you develop that ability. And we also fed many myths. And, you know, like if we do something enough, tweet enough, or we don't call it that anymore, but whatever we call it uh, X now. X enough. Or, someone told do, me they're going back to, t- to Twitter the other day. I hope so. Yeah. 
because I still say it, it's too <laughs> use it. But you know the um, you know if we we feel like if we do that enough, we'll be in control. And we're just watching that whole pattern uh, gives us an avenue out because we don't need to keep making ourselves miserable. But in terms of the larger question or the deeper question, I try to go deeper. You know because I think that sense of helplessness when it really uh, is strong is is very damaging and I'd rather channel that anguish or grief or dismay or confusion, whatever it is, you know, channel it into some action. And for me in a situation like this, I did listen, by the way, to several of your previous podcasts yesterday, oh, thank uh, you. you know, uh, about the topic, you know, which was really interesting. You have a platform of communication, even if it's just expressing your Confusion. All the confused people <laughs> good, can say, good, "Wow, yeah." Good, good point. You good know, point. and uh, and also for me, it's translated into a commitment to try to counter hatred because it's so awful and so spreading in so many ways. You know, I never felt like uh, I mean, I went to college during the Vietnam War, and I look back with some regret at our rhetoric and you know, the way we treated returning soldiers, the way we uh, even had a kind of hatred for police officers. I remember someone who I later saw in India uh, bringing a, uh, a pig to roast, you know, like a poor dead pig. Yeah. Uh, and I went back to Buffalo just a few years ago uh, for the first time in all these years and a friend who still lives there was driving me around. I said, oh, yeah, I was there. I was tear gassed over there. And he said, yeah, I was tear gassed over there. And, you know, it was a wild time. And uh, and we were very young. And uh, I just didn't imagine that kind of virulence and violence would be, you know, present again. And, and whether it's in our family, our community, or our sense of globally doing whatever we can, we have to kind of take that sense of, of helplessness and channel it in some way. And so when, when people are doing that on social media and they're fighting with other people on social media, would you say then that there is kind of value in that because they are, at least in their mind, trying to further the, the beliefs that they think are right? Or is it just totally self-destructive because you're just engaging in conflict for mainly the sake of conflict? I would say on social media, it's probably largely self-destructive, but you have to see who, I mean, I learn things, uh, you know, from reading people on Twitter. I'm very careful about who I read because now I, it's easy to get into comments and it's just like beyond belief, you know? Uh, so I just stop, you know, then I'll, I'll just not pursue that. But, uh, you know, it's very hard to keep kind of rules or guidelines of good communication. It's like the thing that I found, you know, so interesting and effective in your podcast is that you spoke of your own experience, which is your experience. It's like no one can take that away from you or deny right. that that's your experience, right, right. which is very different than the accusatory tone of you're a, you know, bigot or you're a, you know. Right, right. Yeah, I think I think that that's, I think that's, that's absolutely right. I mean, even to your point, which is, and, and, I don't know if mindfulness has helped me develop this or not, but when I was uh, taking the subway here to the studio this morning, you know, there was a guy in my subway car who was ranting about God and then all kinds of other things. And I ended up changing cars just because it was annoying me and I was tired. 
but but I did have this moment of thinking like he's probably pretty lonely, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he probably doesn't have that. No way made me want to get in, engaged with him in conversation. Um, but yeah, and I think that's sort of what we see on on social media is just is is a version of that. Um, mm-hmm. But it's a little easier to tune out. Um, I have a million more questions, but I want to ask one more before I let you go, which is um, I I feel like there are all these ways that we think we're supposed to feel or supposed to think. And ultimately, most of the time, they're kind of constrictions on our own ability to perform kind of independent thought and reach conclusions and often be empathetic towards others and and just be free of a lot of sort of internal angst. Um, What's your strategy around that? Because, and maybe this is just sort of growing up kind of in an immigrant Jewish household, but there's just so much of like, how are things supposed to be? And it took me decades to realize like, oh, I don't actually have to think about it that way. Yeah, how great that you had that breakthrough. A lot of people don't, you know, like. Took me a while. No, it's great. And uh, some of it I think is, um, is that habit of how, you know, just checking in, how does this make me feel? This activity, this conversation, this insistence I'm having, you know, myself on something being a certain way. Uh, you know, my uh, often repeated story about that kind of thing is um, realize, realizing that this idea of, of something being perfect is really meaning that you're adopting the story someone else has been weaving, you know, like, because who's decided what's perfect, right. you know, and so. The story I usually tell is about a friend bringing me to the um, area in, in Washington, D.C. with all the cherry trees, mm-hmm. you know, that concentration of cherry trees, and yeah. they blossom all at once, and it's it's cherry blossom season. So one year, this friend brought me there, and I was just in awe. I thought, this is so beautiful, all these delicate pink blossoms. And then my friend said, oh, no, it's past the peak. And I thought, oh, no, I'm having a bad experience. This isn't good enough. <laughs> Suddenly, it was all inferior because someone else had said that, right? Right, and opposed to your, so your own perception. Just being aware and seeing that you do that. And also, I'd say, back to your friends at the soup kitchen, yeah. having some sense of community. It's like you can reveal a vulnerability in a certain kind of community, and everyone can laugh together, and you can cry together. And, you know, you don't all have to agree about everything, but you know that there's there's a different way of being together and, and we can develop that. Yeah, I mean, I, I would argue, or something at least I think I've learned is there can be tremendous strength in vulnerability, right? Because oftentimes the, the things we're, that people can use to make us feel bad about ourselves are things that we feel bad about ourselves and instead of kind of just owning them and accepting that we're not perfect and we have good qualities and bad qualities, we kind of hate ourselves for the bad qualities and then other people can exploit that uh, and make us feel bad. And when, you know, what I'm learning to do is if I just own them and say, yeah, yeah, I, I am like that. That's true. Uh, and I accept that about myself. Um, it kind of takes away their power. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, so just, we've got, uh, this, this event space that seats around 80. We've got this podcast studio. So when you, are, when you great. are in New York, just consider all of it yours. Thank you. Uh, you want to record you. whatever. I mean, it happens to be a free podcast studio for anyone to use anyway. Um, it's in my bookstore on the Lower East Side. But, um, but, with, and if you ever, you know, or you and Josh, anybody wanted to come sit with me in my apartment, I do that. That, you know, that, that, would, that would be an honor. You and Kim, you know, for that matter. Yeah. Yeah, that would be an honor. So, all right, cool. Sharon, thank you so much for all of this. And, uh, you know, just really 
tremendously grateful for it. Oh, well, thank you. Okay. Firewall is recorded on the Lower East Side of PNT Network, home to New York City's only free podcast recording studio. Let us know if you have a question, feedback, or ideas for a guest. Just email me at bradley at firewall.media or find me on Twitter, or some people now call it X, at Bradley Tusk. And don't forget to pre-order my debut novel, Obvious in Hindsight, wherever books are sold, especially here at PNT Network.